0: And I realized that it all came together, that the risk decisions that each person take, whether they deal with the big scary thing coming at them or not, Mm -hmm. has to do with all sorts of influences that we don't spend enough time thinking about. Your your cultural environment, the the sort of processes and habits that you have, and then your innate personality and what you do about it. And so I kind of pulled all those things together to take a somewhat philosophical, but also very practical look at risk and to help people understand that when you're making a decision, you're taking a risk. Every choice is a risk. Every risk is a choice, but you don't really think about all the unconscious factors that go into it. And once you do, you will never stop thinking about them again, and Mm. it'll be for the better.
1: Hi. Michelle Florendo here, and welcome to Ask a Decision Engineer. Listen in and find out how to untangle big decisions with less stress and more clarity. Risk. For some people, the very thought sends chills down their spines. Yet for others, the topic prompts a sense of thrill. Why is that the case? And what does that mean for how we think about risk in decision-making. To answer those questions and more, I turned to Michelle Wooker, author of the books, The Gray Rhino and You Are What You Risk. We chat about how the way we define risk matters, the layers of factors that make up our risk fingerprint and things to keep in mind about risk when making group decisions. Enjoy the episode. Michelle, I am so glad that you are here. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be
1: here. I'm, I'm especially tickled to have you here because this the show is called Ask a Decision Engineer, right? And one of the questions I often get is, so how do I think about risk? And I figured, you know what? there's another person who might be better at answering this question and so many different angles on this question. And so thank you so much for being here.
0: Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. And I'm really happy to hear that people are asking about thinking about risk Because, you know, I find that people don't think about it enough when they're thinking about decisions. So that's already the first barrier that's been overcome, which makes me super happy. Yes. I mean, I think a lot
1: of of what I've been talking about in this podcast is, yes, doing the metacognition around how is it that we think about decisions? How is it that we think about these different components? And so for everyone in the audience out there, all of these different angles on risk for any of you have ever wondered, how do I think about this? How do I deal with other people who think about things differently? Those are all types of things we'll cover today. But first- Actually, Michelle, I wanted you to just share with the audience how is it that you came to this risk stuff? What is it that prompted you to write this entire book, You Are What You Risk, on this topic?
0: Well, it's you know, it's funny that the, the short answer is that it came out of my third book, The Gray Rhino, right. which is about the big scary things coming at you and giving you a choice of you know what to do about it or not. But the longer answer is that all of a sudden I realized I've been working on this for way longer than than I thought. But I was going around the world. You know, my background is in policy and finance, kind of geeky stuff, you know, business strategy, and I'd be talking about these topics, and readers would come up to me, and they'd either ask me how do I apply this to my personal life? Or they just tell me how they applied it to their personal <laughs> life. And I was a little bit puzzled because I'm I'm not a self-help writer, but I felt this, this just organic response and people were really wanting more of this. And so I was talking to a close friend who's been someone I I'd bounced ideas off of for years. And he said, you know, Michelle, there's actually a closer connection between this sort of, you know, personal risk decision-making and the kind of finance, business, and policy stuff that you do. Let me tell you why. Last week, my investment committee met about the investments that disappointed. In every single case, the due diligence had a bunch of red flags come up, but we didn't really pay attention to them because they weren't the usual ones you think about, which is the, you know, the, the product, the business model, the, mm-hmm. the macroeconomic environment. He said, it was bad personal risk decisions by the CEOs the drunk driving the speeding the cheating the domestic violence <laughs> and i started looking into it and you know you start seeing all these these stories about about CEOs throwing tantrums and and sleeping with spies and bragging about it and and all of these you know terrible terrible behaviors which don't show great judgment about you know, the kind of risks that you take socially. Mm-hmm. And I realized that it all came together, that the risk decisions that each person take, whether they deal with the big scary thing coming at them or not, mm-hmm. has to do with all sorts of influences that we don't spend enough time thinking about. Your, your cultural environment, right. the it's a sort of processes and habits that you have, and then your innate personality and you know what you do about it. And so I kind of pulled all those things together to take a somewhat philosophical, but also very practical look at risk. And to help people understand that when you're making a decision, you're taking a risk. Every choice is a risk. Every risk is a choice, but you don't really think about all the unconscious factors that go into it. And once you do, you will never stop thinking about them again and Mm. it'll be for the better.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think you're highlighting is that sometimes we think that, oh, the the realm of business decisions, policy decisions, these big official decisions is separate from personal decisions. But what I'm hearing you talk about is how these decisions are at the end of the day made by humans, by people, and how we think about decisions, how we think about risk is coming from us as a person.
0: Absolutely. And you know, we've seen it through the pandemic. You know, different countries with different cultures, different familiarity with using masks. You know, in mm-hmm. Asia, people were used to using it for air pollution or, you know, cherry blossom season in Japan, which I learned the hard way <laughs> that you oh. really want to wear a mask with my seasonal allergies. But that that people have different levels of social trust. Mm-hmm. They've got different values, different expectations about what the government does, what businesses do, what their neighbors do, you know, who they're thinking about when they're thinking about risks, if they're just thinking about themselves and their families or thinking more broadly about a, a set of inter- interdependent risks. And we saw a huge difference in risk responses to the pandemic. And mm-hmm. that came partly from cultural things, partly from communications from governments, you know, even within the states, very different strategies, but also bigger national policies risk policies and, and and cultural factors and and different businesses looking at it different ways and so they all go together and it's hard when once you start thinking about how to make a bunch of individuals change their views about risk and that's really what we need to, to do a lot more of
1: mm. but I think as you said the first step in being able to to shift how we think about risk and the decisions, that come out of different mindsets of risk. We need to be able to examine, how is it that we're thinking about it? And so you know, before we dig into that, maybe it'd be useful just to to define risk because I think even different people may be thinking about different things. I know in my world, I talk about the distinction between uncertainty and risk, but risk is still usually possibility of bad things happening. But for the purposes of this discussion, how do you define it?
0: I'm so glad you asked that because this is is sort of the crux of the problem Mm. is that, you know, risk professionals or actuaries will talk about things in one way. They tend to be very quantitative and they do make this distinction between risk and uncertainty, risk being something that you can assign a probability to, that you can quantify, which means you can price it and (laughs) you make a business out of it. Mm. And that uncertainty is the thing where you just really don't Don't know. know. And the way most people think about risk and uncertainty, they're really closely intertwined. People have a very, very hard time looking at a a spectrum of probabilities. In fact, I was talking with a friend over lunch in Manhattan after a big global risks conference that we'd been at in in Sweden earlier. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, you know, they're talking about these percentages, probabilities, and I just don't get it. For me, it's binary. It either happens or it doesn't happen. And so that's one big distinction between the risk professionals and the everyday people. Right. And one of the reasons I wrote this book too, was that I, I talked a lot about gray rhinos with business continuity profess- professionals and all sorts of mm-hmm. you know, risk, risk managers. And they all said that they had a really hard time trying to get everybody in the organization as obsessed with risk. As they mm. were, and one woman actually told me that she used the the gray rhino concept, and it really worked. She'd be walking down the hall, and people would stick their heads out of their office and say, "Oh, I got a gray rhino for you." Wait so, and can you can
1: you tell us more about the gray rhino concept for the uh, people in the audience who may not be familiar?
0: Yeah, so it's a big the big, scary thing that's coming mm. at you gives you a choice of what to do. and it's it's a way of saying that you're much more likely to take your eye off of the big obvious things than you think you are.
1: Mm. but you don't have
0: to. You know, that that it's really a challenge to get people to take a fresh look at obvious risks. And the new book's really about what each person brings to those risks, uh-huh. you know, to why you respond or or why you don't. Because mm-hmm.
1: like you said, when when that big thing that is coming at you is coming, you have a choice. And what yeah, factors And so
0: in risk, in risk management, there's, you know, I, I work with the, the directors and chief risk officers institute. And, and for us, it's all about positive governance of risk taking. Mm-hmm. That risk doesn't necessarily mean negative or positive, but it's it's really the mix of those. And when I do workshops with companies, I'll often ask the group right at the beginning to define mm-hmm. risk. <laughs> and it's very different depending on the industry. You get this mix. Some people, it's, it's words like, you know, opportunity, challenge, gamble. Mm. And for other ones, it's you know, peril, loss, danger. <laughs> and some people say, well, it, it depends. And so I think that that's a really important concept because a lot of the reason that that risk managers have trouble getting people to pay attention is that people just think about it as the scary stuff. The risk managers can really make some difference by adding to it the possible thing. You know, that that if, if here's a big scary thing that's affecting you and all of your competitors, and if your competitors don't deal with it, and if you do deal with it, that means you've got a huge advantage over the other companies, like, you know, mm-hmm. food safety, you look at all these, these recalls lately. If you pay attention to this, you're way ahead of, of the other the other people. And so this definition of risk is really important. I think each person needs to come to it for themselves and be aware of whether you naturally approach it as a positive, as a negative, or if you got to think it through. And if you mm-hmm. know that you lean towards the negative, then How do you surround yourself with the kind of people and how do you develop the kinds of habits that make it easier for you to pursue more opportunities, to make more take more positive risks. And similarly, if you're the kind of person who who leaps before you look and, you know, you just see the good and you, you don't look at the bad, you know, mm-hmm. how do you get people around you to help you say, okay, let's take a deep breath now, step back and make sure we've thought this through. And so risk becomes a a social process as well mm-hmm. as just an individual decision. And there are very interesting differences in risk choice dynamics between individuals' themselves and then what happens when they get into a group.
1: I find this so interesting because you're highlighting just one of those aspects that we can start examining our own thinking about risk. When do we veer towards even defining it as positive, negative, or neutral? And then we can start bringing people in around us to to help us influence our decisions in different ways. But you're going on to, to tell me more about. These dynamics are that differ between individual decision-making and how we process risk and what happens in social environments. So what are some of the things you found there?
0: So there's a phenomenon called risky shift. Hmm. And that's that when you get into a group of people, you are much more likely to be either more strongly risk-seeking or more strongly risk-avoidant than when you were on your own. And some of this is similar to the groupthink a concept that, that mm. you and your listeners probably are quite familiar with, that if you have a bunch of people around a table who who look alike, who went to the same schools, who you know read the same stuff, you're going to get people just nodding and agreeing with each other. And that's where you're going to get a stronger risky shift, that that the whole group's going to do something based on what one person said, and everybody's going to reinforce it. But if you've got a more diverse group, you're not necessarily going to see that Effect and you also get cultural differences in in Asian cultures that are more collectivist versus Mm -hmm. you know Western or Australian U.S. cultures that are more individualist. You will see uh, less shift from the individual to the group. And then there are some very interesting experiments showing that the individualist cultures had people exhibit more gender stereotypes. When they went Hmm. into a group. So, you know, the stereotype is that women are risk averse, which is a word I hate using. And we can talk about that, (laughs) but you know, that the women aren't supposed to be risk takers and that these women on their own would take bigger risks than in the group because they felt they were being affected by that stereotype. Or similarly, men or, well, teenagers is a great example of this. <laughs> As every parent knows, you know, the kids that your, your, your kid is hanging around with can lead them to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. And so that, mm-hmm. that social environment is, is hugely important in influencing some of the risk decisions that you're taking.
1: Okay. And so there's this, this piece around awareness of how we're being impacted by the group. And also the opportunities for us to, through that understanding, construct our social environments in ways that support decision making the way that we want to, to face it.
0: Absolutely, you know, we've we, we've read all the the reports on how gender diversity and other forms of diversity can improve decision making mm. but something that needs to be in there that is not as often as I'd like to see it and, and if it's up to me I'm going to do something about it you know thinking about differences in in risk preferences you know the, the mm. stereotype is that people of a certain ethnic group or age group or gender have a very similar attitude towards risk among themselves. And that's actually not true. There's Mm -hmm. a wide range among each of these groups. So just the kinds of diversity we normally talk about is not enough to get a diversity of risk attitudes. And that's particularly important in groups where people come from the same, the same professional backgrounds. You want to get people in a room who are going to have a variety of backgrounds. Sometimes people gravitate towards a career that is more suited with their, their innate risk personality. Like, mm-hmm. you know, air traffic controllers tend to be very similar <laughs> or, you know, or, or good lawyers. <laughs> yeah. It's a very good thing. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really happy for that. But the lawyers, you have like the litigators and then you have the contract lawyers, two very different risk profiles. And in turn, those are very different from from marketers or engineers and or creatives and innovators. And you really want to get that, that mix of people in the room because it's going to help you to get to smarter risk decisions.
1: Mm-hmm. And so as we're becoming more aware of what our own risk tendencies, risk personalities are and paying attention to who else is in the room, sounds like greater diversity drives better decision-making. But to, to what you said about We can't use stereotypes to assess different risk attitudes or risk preferences. And so how is it that we could better understand what are the different risk personalities? Is this the the risk fingerprint concept that you had talked
0: about? Absolutely. And, you know, as you know, a fingerprint, the the, the actual fingerprint that you have is is a biometric identifier because it includes some genetic imprints that, you know, nobody else has one like. It's just like every single snowflake or every single grain of sand is completely different. And so each risk fingerprint, just like a real fingerprint, has three components. There's Mm -hmm. the innate personality, which is like the genetic part, the world, the arches and the loops on your finger. Then there's experience. That's if you say, cut your finger with a knife, that Mm -hmm. scar leaves an indelible mark that's gonna show up when you go through the biometric identifier at the airport, it leaves a mark there. And similarly with behaviors, the experiences that you've had change how you deal with risk in the future. And then the third part, which is where I spend a lot of time is the environment. Again, going back to the real fingerprint, if you stay in the bathtub too long, your fingerprint's going to be all wrinkly. If it's, if it's hot, it's going to be sweaty. If you do a lot of manual labor, it's going to be calloused. If you do a lot of, of desk work and use nice raw shea butter cream, it's going to be nice and soft. <laughs> and not to take it too far, but that's, that's basically the habits that you can establish. The, mm. That includes self-awareness right up front, the, the organizational processes, which includes creating the right social mix. Environmental factors, there's, these are some of the kind of, you know, Freakonomics risk factors like if you have spicy food for lunch, you're going to be more risk seeking afterwards. Colder temperatures make you more risk tolerant. The color of the paint in the room, all mm. sorts of things. After the book came out, after you are, you risk came out. I I heard two new things. One is that Tylenol can you can make you more risk seeking. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah, and then that the day of the week can also change. So all these unconscious influences on the kinds of risks that you are willing to take or not. So these three all come together, your innate personality, your experiences, how those experiences interact with the innate personality. One person might cut their finger with a knife and they never wanna see a knife again. And somebody mm-hmm. else might say, oh, I survived that. I'm going to be a sushi chef now, you know? <laughs> and, and then, the, you know, so, so those interact. And then the third is really this set of things that you can do to control your environment. And of course, the more control people feel that they have, the more risks they are likely to be comfortable taking. And mm-hmm. also the, the, the more they're likely to objectively reduce the risk. There's one form of control is knowledge. You know, when hmm. you do your homework, when you develop the skills that you need, you're actually going to be much med- better at making good risk decisions. And, and that also means going through uncertainty, which means that you have to make a lot of risk choices when you really have very little information about what's how it's actually going to turn out.
1: Hmm. I love these different layers of our, our risk fingerprint, like you said. Everyone is different, but that piece around the inherent personality, like what, what are those inherent tendencies, the experiences that layer over and then environment. And would you say the environment pieces where we can make the most shift if we want?
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's more you know, optimizing. It's mm-hmm. optimizing for your personality and experience. I get asked mm. all the time, is there an ideal risk personality? And my answer is no, because we need all of the different kinds of approaches. You know, some mm-hmm. people who are anxious, some people who are calm, some people who, who are impulsive, who are going to seek the, the opportunities and other people who are more methodical say, hey, let's, let's pull back. And so those, those processes and habits can change it. And then just like the, the real fingerprint, it tells the world, the risk choices that you make, tell the world who you are just like the fingerprint Mm -hmm. on the glass at the crime scene. You know, and that imprint, and that you can think of that imprint as the the choices that you make or, you know, your risk profile, which is the kind of thing a financial advisor might have you do. They'll ask you, you know, what choices would you make in this situation? How much money would you be willing to lose in order to possibly gain this much? So your your fingerprint, the thing that's part of you, imprints on these choices, it tells the Mm -hmm. world, really who you are. So every risk you take is sending out signals to the world about who you really are.
1: It reminds me of I had a conversation with I think it's Dave Evans one of the co-authors of the Designing Your Life series and he talks about how decisions decisions eventually is what informs our identity over time. It does basically show who we are through the choices we make. So I think there's a lot of resonance there.
0: Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's really where the title came from and, and <laughs> the risk fingerprint that, that you are, what you risk, what says what you are to the world more than a fingerprint. Right. And, it, you know, so it really kind of all goes, it all goes together.
1: Yeah. And I think there's power there because what I've seen you do is link these things that we are, are coming with our personality and our experiences with also what are the decisions we want to make and awareness of the environmental pieces, but also where we might want to shift, how we can shift who we surround ourselves by or even how we construct teams and organizations in order to evolve into who we want to become.
0: Absolutely. Really it's powerful. about your, your priorities and your values. During the pandemic, we've seen the, the so-called great resignation, you know, people quitting their jobs for all kinds of reasons. And there's some articles saying, oh, well, you know, people are doing riskier things. Quitting your job is really risky. But actually staying in a job that you hate, where you're not growing, that's, that's pretty also, darn risky too. Yeah, and, it depends on what you value, like you yeah, said. Yeah, I mean, I went through that experience where I was in a job where it was time for me to leave, and I, it literally made me sick, mm-hmm. physically ill, being someplace I wasn't supposed to be. And I think it's that, that people have reevaluated where the risks are. Mm -hmm. And what's more important to them? And that might be just because we're all facing our own mortality with the, you know, the people we know, the friends of friends and and the the numbers of people who have died during the pandemic. And so we've all really reshuffled all of our priorities during the pandemic. And we're just starting to see where that's taking the world. Mm -hmm.
1: And so it's been been a really top of mind topic for folks, especially given what's happened the past couple of years. And now as people take these renewed encounters with risk and also understanding of what their values are, how do they then move forward? What are the things that people can do to, I guess, build their risk muscles so they can be making better decisions for themselves going forward?
0: It's a great question. And it really is like a muscle. You know, the more little risks you take, the better you are at taking the big ones and, and, and sometimes it's a matter of, of just getting up and doing something when, when you know you need to. So it's you know creating these habits. If you know you've got something big coming, you can do things day to day to change that. Like one of the people I interviewed for the book was someone who was, was dreaming of being a professional soccer player when he was in wow. high school. And so that was, it was practice, 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 You know, no social life. And he ended up with an injury, which shattered his dreams. Oh. And all of a sudden he's trying to figure out what he's going to do next and he's feeling super socially awkward. So what did he do? He put himself intentionally in socially awkward situations, you know, taking odd jobs where you know you dress up in a costume and hand out flyers, or you know, he would go and, and make himself talk to that stranger in the bar. So it makes you do those, those little things. So the self-awareness it, really the first thing you do is is understand what is ideal for you. There's another example mm. of a woman who took a, a test that that I I love with the caveat that psychometric tests are are not they're not perfect. They're not everything, but there is some use in them. But this one is called the risk type compass. Mm. And she thought that she would come out as like a really adventurous person. And her profile came out as as being, you know, much more prudent and methodical than she thought. And she was kind of bummed out until mm-hmm. she realized that she was the only one at her company who cared enough to do the work. This is when the, the, the European GDPR, the, the data protection oh. regulation was coming out. Mm-hmm. She was the only one who would go through it and make sure that they were in, in compliance. And also she realized, wow, you know, I'm bringing real value to this <laughs> yes. situation. Yeah. And so when you look at that, you can look at how you fit into your environment. You know, are you at a big legacy company, working for the man? Are you at a startup? Is that a good fit with who you are? Are you taking the risks that are appropriate for for what you want to be doing in your life? Are you surrounding yourself with the kind of people who both provide you the knowledge that you need to get through whatever you want to get through and the safety net? you know, do you have a chatty best friend, you know, like the, the Awkwafina character in Crazy Rich Asians, who's <laughs> like, don't wear that red dress, you know, who tells you the things that you don't want to hear, but someone really needs to tell you. So it's, you know, surrounding yourself with those sort of people, starting to, to push your boundaries, and then setting some goals that will get you towards the place that you want to go. Accountability groups, are, are a really a great tool mm-hmm. or, you know, working with coaches, finding people who can help you really think through the choices that you're going to make and work your risk fingerprint into it.
1: Mm-hmm. So it really comes back to starting with that self-awareness piece and understanding all these different factors you've identified that kind of impact how we approach risk and then figuring out where we want to be. And then you can kind of design practices or social networks and environments that help support the growth in that direction.
0: Absolutely. And then little, little Mm -hmm. hacks, like, you know, if you want to ask for a raise, then you know, take your boss to the Thai restaurant, order the spiciest dishes on the menu, ask the the (laughs) manager to, to turn the AC to the lowest possible (laughs) level. And then here's another funny one, ask them to put really upbeat music. On the, on the on the audio system because there's 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 research showing that you know if you've got this really up tempo music in your car you're more likely to speed, oh. so so that'll kind of get your uh, get your courage up for asking your boss for that for that raise. <laughs>
1: Maybe they can uh, take some Tylenol too. Was that the thing? Yeah,
0: yep, said? yep. a couple of Tylenol that'll do it. Oops. And then I forget which days of the week are the ones, but but look up that research. You know, <laughs> risk <laughs> risk by day of the week and pick the right day. Right. On the other hand, you know, if you're the kind of person who who loves risks and might be making a completely unreasonable demand, then do the opposite. Opposite, you know, go someplace mm-hmm. where they serve oatmeal. Yeah.
1: So super interesting ways in which we can, we can kind of like influence ourselves or influence the evolution of our risk fingerprint in, in the direction that may serve us better. Absolutely. I know we've, we've spent a lot of time just talking about the individual piece, but I know, especially given your background and like you think about risk, not from the personal piece, but in, in interpersonal dynamics in organizations in like big policy decisions And so what are some of the key lessons that listeners should take away when they think about risk, but also in group decision-making?
0: Such a great question. And it it really brings us to this concept of risk empathy, Mm. which resonated very, very strongly. You know, in a lot of the different talks I've given, there was a talk with 60 chief risk officers, and they really love this concept of risk empathy. And that's understanding your own risk fingerprint But also seeking to understand the risk fingerprints of the people around you Mm -hmm. and you know if you're a boss if you're a teammate seeing how you can change the circumstances to to optimize that person's potential given their risk fingerprint and that also goes to the stereotypes that we talked about before you know Mm -hmm. don't assume that somebody's gonna be something have an open conversation about it there are a couple of questions that that I ask all the time and mm-hmm. that I think should be part of recruiting questions part of part of the beginning of the conversation if you haven't talked openly about risk is a great great to fire starter which is a, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken mm. And that, oh, that tells, that tells the world so much about yourself. And of course, the funny thing is that when I started talking about the book, all these reporters would come back to me and they say, okay, smarty pants, Michelle, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm like, you know, you know, sharing personal stuff feels very, very risky answering to answering this but...
1: question right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no kidding. But I feel like, you know, I, I, I for me to be fair and honest with my readers i've got to i got to walk the walk not just talk the talk <laughs> and so i start telling this this a story about a decision that involved you know my health and my career and and things and all of a sudden i realized the decision that i took which was to, to quit my job writing about emerging markets finance, you know, on Wall Street with, you know, good pay. And I was paying back my student loans like crazy <laughs> and, you know, interviewing world leaders. And it was great. but I, I quit and I got on a plane to the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and I worked on finishing my first book. And that seems like a really risky thing to a lot of people, you know, to to my family in the the Midwest, for sure. But it was actually only the second biggest risk in that situation. The biggest risk was that if if I didn't do what I felt I was supposed to be doing with my talents, with the unique skill set that I had, with the things I really cared about, I would get sick again. I think I'd mentioned before, I you know, worked so yeah. hard, I literally got myself sick. And that, you know, actually that, that getting sick is a big crossroads for a lot of people. It, it changes your priorities. And so for me, actually the, the quitting my job and going and gallivanting around the Caribbean was only the second biggest risk. And so now I follow up that first question with, what's the biggest risk you didn't take? Mm. And for me, the biggest risk in that situation was staying in a job that certainly to a lot of people looked like it was not that risky at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. Two powerful questions. What's the biggest risk that you've taken? What's the biggest one that you didn't? And I can see how it, it, it just illustrates how someone thinks about risk. What is it that someone values? What are the ways in which they are processing that? Oh, that's a juicy gem. Right there.
0: <laughs> <gasps> yeah. Or, you know, if they'd asked that in the recruit, there's another a set of questions they'd ask in, you know, recruiting at GM before their their ignition switch issue that, you know, give people hypothetical scenarios, particularly involving, say, you know, safety decisions <laughs> mm. involving cars and other products. Ask people what choice they would make in that situation. You know, you hear about this ignition switch that costs 57 cents that mm-hmm. is acting up and you know what do you think the costs are if you don't pay attention I mean you know billions and billions of dollars I I bet most people didn't think that and and that actually goes to another part of this whole risk perception and Mm. tolerance mix and that's if you see a, a benefit for yourself you are likely to underestimate how likely it is that it will go wrong and how badly it will go wrong Mm. And if you think about it in that lens, look at all of these big you know, Wall Street you know, trader disasters and corporate scandals and things like that, and that starts to make a lot of sense. You know, people are really going in to make the biggest buck they can for themselves. They're cutting corners. And then, of course, other people end up paying the price for it. And that's actually another criterion is you know, who's going to pay the price if something goes wrong. And that's mm. going to affect how much risk you're willing to take or not.
1: What you're talking about is, is reminding me of a question that I sometimes get around, how is it that we should be thinking about risk when it does have broader impacts on you know, other people, the community, the environment? Like how, how do we need to switch how we think about risk in those situations versus when we're making personal decisions?
0: So what you're really talking about is, is externalities. You know, it's part of you know, environmental and climate decisions. It's part of you know, risky bank lending, things like that, where you know anything that's gonna force the, the government to come in and, and you know, push the cost onto taxpayers, push the cost onto people who are living in places affected by pollution or by extreme climate change. And you see that, that there's what Mariana Mazzucato has called an amazing economist who talks about the relationship between price and value and the importance of taking risks and the distribution of both the benefits and the costs of those risks. And you know she talks about really the, you know, the privatization of the profit and the socialization of the risk. Mm. And we have in our society a real mismatch there. The other side of this is in how creditworthy we deem someone to be. You look hmm. at these big banks with with systemic importance, and they're the ones who are able to borrow at at the lowest rates, you know, next to the government. And then you look at these small businesses, and you know there are some uh, small business administration and other programs to help them, but none of these small businesses is is going to be systemically important if it fails, but if it succeeds, it's going to be systemically important on a small level, on a community level. And the more of these individually important businesses, these small businesses you have, you see the revitalization of communities, you see the addition of jobs, you Mm -hmm. see this, this trickle up economy. And so I think we need to be doing a lot of thinking about how we get financing to those small businesses, to the solopreneurs, to the people who are, who are doing the kind of work that has social and community benefit as well right. as to, to themselves. And how can we get more of that happening? And, and that really goes down to the, the question of, you know, who's worth taking a risk on? And if it's not, if it's a market failure, which I believe in many cases it is, how can, how can policymakers step in to fix that? Like, mm. you know, we have, we have political risk insurance that's, that's subsidized for companies investing in other countries. Right. And is there a way to, to do that on a much bigger scale for, you know, for communities that businesses mm. hesitate to invest in? And there are all sorts of tax incentives and things like that, but those are often designed in a way that doesn't necessarily benefit the community. So, you know, how yeah. do we really share both the benefits and the burdens of risk taking in a fair way? Mm.
1: Oh, such a great point. And I think it's when not even altruistic.
0: It. <laughs> it's like, right. that's the kind of thing we need to do to get the economy to grow. As we saw during the, the pandemic, the, the right. frontline workers, the, the kind of people who couldn't stay home, we saw how much we depend on them. We saw how much mm-hmm. we depend on the small businesses. Yeah. And that's That the support to those people is what kept the economy going and so it's when you start thinking about shared self interest, and -hmm. the way that the trickle up economics can work. It's, it's in everybody's self interest. Yeah.
1: It reminds me of, there was a, a part of your book that I was reading and it hit home why I think it's useful for people to think about risk really. And it was the piece where you were talking about how when things feel more risky, we tend to go back to a narrow view of like, who am I trying to benefit in this decision? Whereas when when we don't feel like things are under threat, we're more likely to think more global globally and systemically and broaden the, the, the view of what am I trying to benefit with this decision? And so I can see the the more that we get used to being aware of our risk profile, being comfortable with various levels of risk, it seems like we'll also be able to shift into more of that type of global benefit. Thinking.
0: Absolutely, it's the, the the me here now versus the us everywhere forever that mm-hmm. my my friend Peter Atwater has developed. He does a lot of really interesting w- work on social mood and markets. and And the thing is, what we need to get ourselves out of this sort of <laughs> very very <laughs> shaky situation, the world feels in, is we yeah. do need an interpe- interdependent, long term approach. The you know us yeah. everywhere forever, but what we're getting is still the me here now, the Mm -hmm. opposite of what we need to, to fix the problem.
1: Yeah. Oh, such important stuff. And as, as we're wrapping up this conversation, what are some of the last things you want to leave listeners with on this topic of risk?
0: I think the first thing is to ask yourself, you know, what's what's your risk fingerprint? Why do you have the relationship with risk that you do? You know, did your parents agree about what risk to take <laughs> or not? You know, siblings, the people around you, really start looking at understanding your risk fingerprint. And then I would say, going back to this gray rhino thing, you know looking at the risks around you, I urge people to, to, to picture, you close your eyes, you picture this giant rhino coming at you, and you've you got to make a decision about what to do. So think about the big risks in your life, whether it's, it's health risks or finance or career or relationships, things like that. And imagine that written on the rhino's horn. Imagine it coming at you and then ask yourself, what am I doing? What's my gray rhino? What am I doing about it? And what do I need to be doing? And if there's a big gap Mm. between what I'm doing, what I need to be doing, how do I change that? Who can help me? What resources do I need? What mindset shift do I need? And and those questions, those will give you so much food for thought, you know, way more than we could talk about in a a podcast. (laughs) But those are really great tools for for thinking about why you're taking the risks you are, whether you're taking good ones or not. And then also, when you think back and and ask yourself, what's the biggest risk I ever took? Ask yourself, well, was I happy with the outcome or not? Mm. And why? If I wasn't happy, what could I have done differently? What did I learn from that experience? So that's self-awareness. 2.0.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of these different insights from your book. You are what you risk and sprinkling in so in those insights from the gray rhino. I think all of this is super relevant, especially given the time that we are living in and some of the things that have come to the forefront of, of our lives and the decisions we've had to make. So thank you, Michelle.
0: Thank you for such great questions and for engaging so much with the material. It just makes me so happy when, when people really think about how these ideas can change their life, how they can change the lives of other people and really apply them. Very early in, in my career, you know, I was, I was a journalist very early on, although I haven't been a journalist for years and years. They would teach us just, you know, just tell the story. And at some point, I realized that the impact that the, you know, people putting ideas to use was what i cared about the most and so it really really excites me the way that you've you've really engaged with the ideas and hopefully your listeners will too
1: absolutely thank you so much for listening to this episode if you heard something today that you found helpful please share this episode or write a review also if you're interested in more resources on how to make decisions with less stress and more clarity like my quick start guide for untangling big decisions or the decision-making courses I teach, check out the show notes or go to askadecisionengineer.com to sign up for the mailing list. Be sure to check out the other episodes this season. Next week, I'll be speaking with Dave Evans, co-author of Designing Your Life and Designing Your New Work Life and co-founder of Stanford's Life Design Lab. He'll share his thoughts on discernment and ways of knowing, or in other words, how do you know when you know, you know? Be sure to tune in. Again, this is Michelle Florendo from Ask a Decision Engineer. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.